Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We're back with another mini episode for the Inside the Board Study Smarter series for the U.S. MLE Step 1 and Comlex Level 1. Before we continue the review of microbiology for our Study Smarter series, I just wanted to tell you guys about the Study Smarter Bundle. It includes access to Osmosis Prime for two months and Physio, which has been called the Pathoma of Physiology, for two months. In addition, you'll get a spot in Conrad Fisher's live online Cramathon for Step 1 on April 30th. This offer is good only for a limited time and will end on April 16th. And for the next five days, we are discounting it even more. So head over to InsideTheBoards.com to get all the details. You're probably deciding which resources to use for your dedicated preparation time. And I know you're going to probably use a certain QBank, whose name I won't mention, as well as First Aid. And you should. However, you can definitely augment your learning with the personalized study platform offered by our friends at Osmosis, which includes a study scheduler, a QBank of over 2,000 multiple-choice practice questions, some of which you are hearing on this show, a smart app that is integrated with over 15,000 flashcards and facts that are synced to your phone, analyze your performance, and push the content you need to work on to shore up those weak areas right to your phone. It's pretty cool. Plus, of course, Osmosis has tons of educational videos and tutorials to help you understand and learn the concepts in a concise and easy-to-remember manner. Physio is a new kid on the block with a comprehensive review of the highest yield points of physiology, one of the most important subjects on Step 1 and Level 1. And of course, you can bring it all together with a rapid-fire, extremely high-yield review with the master of the boards himself, Conrad Fisher. Thanks for supporting the podcast, for listening, and for supporting our friends from Physio, Osmosis, and MedQuest. Now, here's Elizabeth. Welcome. I'm Elizabeth Beeman, and I have three excellent high-yield questions for you today. So let's get started. Our first question is a 27-year-old woman comes to the clinic because of burning during urination for the past two days. She had a similar episode a month ago that resolved with one dose of antibiotics. Urine culture now shows a novobiosin-resistant organism that does not reduce nitrate. Which of the following is the most likely causative agent of this patient's symptoms? 
And the choices are A. Staphylococcus saprophyticus, B. Enterococcus fecium, C. Proteus mirabilis, D. E. coli, or E. Klebsiella pneumoniae. And the correct answer is Staphylococcus saprophyticus. Let's talk about what this patient has in the most likely causative agents, and then we'll get to how we figured out the correct answer. So hopefully you could tell from the vignette, young female, burning urination, previous symptoms went away after an antibiotic, and her urine culture shows she's got something growing in there. She's got a urinary tract infection. Let's talk about what the top three causes of UTI are in this age group. So first of all, E. coli is the number one leading cause of UTI in all age groups. That's important to know for step one. Staphylococcus saprophyticus is another one of the top three, and Klebsiella pneumoniae is probably the third one of those top three. So you really want to remember E. coli, Staph saprophyticus, and Klebsiella pneumoniae when talking about UTI. We have some more specific clues. Our urine culture for this patient showed novobiosin resistance. If we remember what novobiosin resistance is usually an indicator of, it's usually used to differentiate between Staphylococcus epidermidis, which is a normal flora that causes some pretty severe biofilms and can cause pretty bad infections in patients with things like indwelling catheters and shunts. That organism is novobiosin sensitive, so Staphylococcus epidermidis, novobiosin sensitive. Staphylococcus saprophyticus then, the one that we are usually trying to differentiate it from, is novobiosin resistant. The bug that we're talking about in this question is novobiosin resistant. So that's our first clue that Staphylococcus saprophyticus is going to be the correct answer. Now, if we already knew Staph saprophyticus is one of the top causes of UTI in young women, this would be very encouraging news. If we didn't remember that, we could keep going on. We hopefully would remember that E. coli is a big leading cause of urinary tract infection. However, we have a clue in the vignette that's going to be the key differentiating factor to tell us that E. coli isn't the right answer in this question. And what is it? It's the fact that the organism that was obtained from the urine culture does not reduce nitrate. If you'll remember, Proteus mirabilis, E. coli, and Klebsiella, three of our wrong answers, they all reduce nitrate. Knowing those three organisms reduce nitrate is very important. And it's actually the only other information you need to arrive back at the correct answer, Staphylococcus saprophyticus. Now, we did have another distracting answer, Enterococcus fecium. This is a normal flora found in the colon and is a very uncommon cause of urinary tract infection in women. So this answer is not as likely because it is not an, a likely cause of urinary tract infection. A few more little pieces of information to know about the bugs that we just talked about. Klebsiella pneumoniae and Proteus mirabilis are both implicated in formation of ammonium magnesium phosphate kidney stones. Remember those big kidney stones that cause the staghorn calculi, like those giant ones you can see very easily on imaging? Those ones are caused by infections with Proteus mirabilis or Staphylococcus saprophyticus or Klebsiella. So any of those three can lead to that presentation. They're also called struvite stones. While these kind of stones only account for about 15% of kidney stones, it is important to remember which bacteria can lead to this presentation. And these stones are radio-opaque. Another good thing to remember about Staphylococcus saprophyticus is that it is a gram-positive, catalase-positive, and coagulase-negative Staphylococcus that does not reduce nitrate. We do have to keep an eye out as Staphylococcus 
Staphylococcus saprophyticus can cause cystitis and is a very common cause of cystitis and pyelonephritis if it isn't treated. So the important key differentiating factors we needed to know to answer this question was that the nitrate-reducing causes of urinary tract infection are Proteus mirabilis, E. coli, and Klebsiella pneumoniae. We needed to know that Staphylococcus saprophyticus is associated with novobiosin resistance and that the three leading causes of urinary tract infection are Staphylococcus saprophyticus, E. coli, and Klebsiella pneumoniae, with E. coli being the overall leading cause. Our next question is, a six-year-old boy is brought to the pediatrician's office by his parents because of blister formation on his buttocks for the past three days. His mother reports seeing enlarged blisters that appear to be filled with fluid. His temperature is 98.8 degrees Fahrenheit, pulse is 72 per minute, respirations are 18 per minute, and blood pressure is 95 over 60. Physical examination shows multiple fluid-filled bullae which slough off easily to light touch. Which of the following toxins is most likely responsible for this patient's condition? A. Exfoliative toxin A. B. Pyrogenic exotoxin. C. Streptolysin O. D. Streptolysin S. Or E. Toxic shock syndrome toxin 1. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And the correct answer is A, exfoliative toxin A. So let's first talk about this patient's diagnosis. It's a young child, six years old, a specific area of the body affected with a apparent bacterial infection. The mother is reporting seeing enlarged blisters on his buttocks that are filled with fluid. And it's really confined to only one area of the body. It's not a diffuse blistering all over the entire body. The question describes blisters with a very thin layer of epidermis that sloughs off very easily to light touch. This should make us immediately think of exfoliative toxin A, which is a toxin produced by Staphylococcus aureus. Remember exfoliative toxin A for its involvement in two clinical presentations. First of all, it's involved in bullus impetigo. You'll remember there is two forms of impetigo. The more common form is the non-bullus form that is also caused by Staphylococcus aureus. But in the non-bullus form of impetigo, we see this honey-colored, crusted skin infection, also seen very commonly in children, affects a specific area of the body and is isolated to that area. But again, it is it is caused by Staphylococcus aureus. We don't see blisters, but we see this honey-crusted kind of infection on the skin. In the bullous form of impetigo, which is described in the clinical presentation, we see large fluid-filled blisters and 
one isolated area of the body that slough off easily. This is because exfoliative toxin A targets desmoglein, which actually separates the layers of the skin very similarly to the pathogenesis of pemphigus vulgaris, if you remember that. So when we see a bolus impetigo, it's a result of the same process, and it is a result of Staphylococcus aureus exfoliative toxin. The other way that this can present is that a primary Staphylococcus aureus infection that allows for hematogenous spread of exfoliative toxin A to farther away parts of the body can result in staphylococcal scalded skin syndrome. Now, we would know that this was staphylococcal scalded skin syndrome if we saw a patient with diffuse blistering over the entire surface of the body. The diffuse blistering is a result, again, of the direct hematogenous spread of this toxin to all over the body. It's a very dangerous condition, but it's still caused by the same organism, Staphylococcus aureus. Let's talk about our wrong answer choices. Choice B, pyrogenic exotoxin, is produced by strep pyogenes. Streptococcus pyogenes is responsible for rheumatic fever and streptococcal toxic shock syndrome. Remember that rheumatic fever is associated with polyarthritis, carditis, nodules. We can also see erythema marginatum in Sydenham chorea. Pharyngitis is usually the predisposing infection before rheumatic fever, still caused by a gram-positive cocci that is Streptococcus pyogenes, a group A strep. We will talk about Streptococcus pyogenes in a later episode, but remember there is an immunologic way that it causes damage. This leads to rheumatic fever and glomerulonephritis, a toxigenic mechanism, which leads to scarlet fever and the toxic shock-like syndrome or necrotizing fasciitis. And the pyogenic reaction can lead to pharyngitis, cellulitis, impetigo, and erysipelas. However, most common cause of impetigo in children is still Staphylococcus aureus. Pyrogenic exotoxin, this choice B that we have here, is, like I said, produced by Streptococcus pyogenes, and it is actually considered a super antigen. It causes uncontrolled proliferation of T lymphocytes. And this is the one that's associated with that scarlet fever and streptococcal toxic shock syndrome. This patient does not have symptoms of scarlet fever. Scarlet fever, we would think of blanching, sandpaper-like body rash. And remember that buzzwords, that strawberry tongue that we see with scarlet fever, often preceded by a streptococcal pharyngitis infection. We're not presented with a patient with that clinical presentation, so we know this is very unlikely to be the causative toxin. Choice C, streptolysin O, is also produced by streptococcus pyogenes. It is a highly immunogenic toxin, and for that reason, we actually use it to differentiate whether a patient has been exposed to strep pyogenes. So we essentially use it to tell whether someone with acute renal failure may have that because of a streptococcus pyogenes infection. Streptolysin O itself actually is responsible for degrading cell membranes. And you can remember that the streptolysin, the O after the streptolysin, is shaped like a red blood cell and that this toxin is responsible for lysing red blood cells. Choice D, streptolysin S, is a virulence factor produced by streptococcus pyogenes. It damages leukocytes and cellular organelles. This is a non-immunogenic toxin as opposed to streptolysin O. And choice E, toxic shock syndrome toxin 1, is a super antigen. The way that it is related to the correct answer is that they are both produced by Staphylococcus aureus. 
However, this one is responsible for, you guessed it, toxic shock syndrome. A patient with toxic shock syndrome would be hemodynamically unstable. Blood pressure could be incredibly low. The overall release of inflammatory cytokines throughout the body that happens as a result of this toxin causes capillary leakage, tissue damage, and multi-organ failure. This is a very, very systemically sick patient. Still caused by Staph aureus, not the correct toxin. So the major takeaway for this question is remembering the toxins associated with Staphylococcus aureus. The two we discussed were exfoliative toxin A, which is implicated in staphylococcal scalded skin syndrome, and bullus impetigo, which we saw in this picture, both of which present with fluid-filled blisters that easily slough off. And the other toxin produced by Staphylococcus aureus that we discussed was toxic shock syndrome toxin 1, which is a superantigen implicated in toxic shock syndrome. Our final question today is, a five-year-old boy with hydrocephalus is brought into the emergency department because of fever, headache, and vomiting for the past 24 hours. The mother states he had a shunt placed two weeks ago, and within a week, he seemed weaker and his appetite decreased. Physical examination is unremarkable. A cerebrospinal fluid sample was analyzed and showed leukocytosis with an increased neutrophil number, decreased protein, and decreased glucose. Which of the following results is expected from analysis of cerebrospinal fluid? A. Acid-fast positive microorganisms. B. Coagulase-negative staphylococcus. C. Gram-negative rods. Or D. PCR positivity for a herpes simplex virus. And the correct answer is coagulase-negative staphylococcus. And if you'll remember from earlier, we actually kind of had a hint in the very first question of this episode as to what the correct answer was going to be because I discussed the difference between Staphylococcus saprophyticus and Staphylococcus epidermidus. And when I talked about Staphylococcus epidermidus, I mentioned that that was a novobiosin-sensitive organism that was responsible for infections in patients with prosthetic devices like shunts. So let's talk about how we can figure out what our correct answer was for this question. This patient who is two weeks out from surgery in which a shunt was placed in his spinal canal should make you think of an infection related to this surgical procedure. The cerebrospinal fluid sample showed leukocytosis, so elevated white blood cells, as well as a left shift, the increased number of neutrophils that demonstrates a likely bacterial infection. If this was a viral infection, we would be thinking about a what's known as a right shift with the leukocytosis. The right shift is indicative of increased monocytes and lymphocytes. And again, we see that with a viral infection. So we're going to go ahead and right away think that we're dealing with a bacterial infection. If we weren't sure, the cerebrospinal fluid analysis further demonstrated bacterial infection when it describes a decreased protein and decreased glucose. You'll remember that encephalitis and meningitis that are caused by bacteria are associated with decreased levels of glucose in the CSF while viral meningitis is not. So we can right away eliminate choice D, PCR positivity for herpes simplex virus, as the correct answer. If the correct answer was going to be herpes simplex virus, we would likely see CSF findings consistent with a viral meningitis, which would be the leukocytosis with a right shift, no decreased glucose, and perhaps even imaging findings 
demonstrating a temporal lobe encephalitis, as we remember that herpes simplex encephalitis is more likely to be primarily affecting the temporal lobes of the brain. Choice A, acid fast positive cerebrospinal fluid would be seen in a patient with meningitis secondary to tuberculosis. This patient has no history of exposure to tuberculosis. There's no positive PPD. There's no findings of granulomas in the lungs. Choice C, gram-negative rods are more commonly seen in the respiratory and enteric tract. So we need to think about salmonella, shigella when we think about gram-negative rods and would be an unlikely cause for this patient's meningitis. So the major takeaway for this question, the thing we really want you to remember for this question is that coagulase negative staphylococci like Staphylococcus epidermidis, a normal skin flora, become a big problem for patients with prosthetic devices due to their ability to form biofilms. That's all for today. We will have a new organism for you in the next episode.